0: Hi, Dan. How are you? It feels like we've backtracked back to midwinter again.
1: I know. Doesn't it just? Doesn't it just? It's got pretty cold out there this week. I think we've all been checking the forecast for this snow, whether it's coming or not. I think it was in the forecast and it was out. And I think it might actually be, be back again. What are you saying?
0: Yeah, for me, it's still still there. I do prefer it to rain. So happy with that.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess by the time this episode airs, we'll see what's um, what would have been accurate there. But yeah, got got a pretty chilly week for those who are out and about anyway, isn't it?
0: Definitely. So have you been using ChatGBT recently?
1: Good question. I have a little bit. It Feels like it's all the rage to be talking about it, doesn't it? Actually, one thing I've been finding quite interesting—it's quite good at coming up with little names for sort of articles, blogs, and even podcast episodes. Interestingly, if you ask it the right question and sort of seed it with the right ideas,
0: yeah. And I think it, I've seen it write a few good articles as well.
1: Yeah, I've seen it write a few. I think one of the issues with investing is that it's it's trained on data pre 2021, I think, isn't it? So if you if you try and ask it something around the current investment climate, it it sort of goes a bit vague, but I think it can do like sort of how to things can't it broader things that rely on kind of more evergreen kind of knowledge, it can come up with quite good little distilled summaries.
0: Yeah, and I think a few other companies wrote similar products to it, but they don't seem to be quite as good. Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, well, I've, I've heard a lot because you've heard a lot about Google and that's sort of a bit of a battlefield there, isn't it, in, in, the, in the sort of AI ch- chat front. It, it really seems to move things forward though, doesn't it? I mean, it's really grabbed people's imagination and attention more than a lot of other tech products have for the last few years. I feel there was this big AI kind of boom of interest about six seven years ago yeah there were a lot of studies about how oh, it's going to reinvent professional services reinvent work life and yeah, it probably is true in the long long term and then things sort of went a little bit quiet there for six seven years it has not really much has happened and then it does feel like chat gpt is a genuine step forward i think it feels like it anyway it certainly seems to have got the cut through and people seem to be using it for real stuff
0: and what sort of areas do you think it could impact the most what sort of jobs
1: I don't know. I remember reading this thing by McKinsey ages ago, which was trying to say that that's sort of the wrong question, that it will replace little bits of a lot of jobs, but it won't necessarily replace any whole jobs um, and you can sort of see that in that it's like a maybe in like a more helpful companion for, for all of us like if any of us want to get sort of up to speed on a topic it can help us put together some background I think it is quite good at writing actually genuinely as well like if you want like little witty energetic opening few lines for an article or something if you give it the right ideas it will come it comes up with really good stuff so I, I think for writing I think journalists will probably use it as an aid rather than a replacement I think is is important because I you know, I think whole articles with something missing there as well. But I, I think using it as an aid in terms of writing, looking for background, that source of stuff feels like sort of the way to go.
0: And do you think there are, there'll ever be an audio version of it available as well? So then we could interview that, for example.
1: Yeah, maybe it's interesting, isn't it? Because part, as part of that AI boom six, seven years ago, I think everyone said, "Oh, these voice assistants are going to be the future," like the Siri and Alexa and stuff. And of course, they they haven't basically. I don't think. Anyway, they're kind of still basically the same as they were six or seven years ago. I mean, they've revolutionized the way I boil eggs in the morning and turn the radio on, basically, but that's, you know, that that that's about it. I mean, they they could be about to change the world and what do I know? But they were sort of the future and they weren't. There's something awkward about the voice interface that's so much harder. And so, so going back to the chat interface does seem to have been quite a good idea. But I don't know, I mean we we've been sort of brainstorming a bit internally, haven't we, ways it could change our world. You you can see arguments for like, you know, we spend time drafting things like I don't, statements of investment principles right for pension schemes and there are tons of those on the web now that are in the public domain so you could see a world where a chatbot learns from all of those and produces first drafts of those pretty reliably although i don't know how much time that actually would really save these days given you know kind of got those drafts anyway haven't we
0: yeah And there's
1: obviously the the investing question as well right and it says how it would actually change investing
0: yeah i've seen some answers there that that say it's like based on the information that it has, this is its advice, but do note that, you know, investments have a, a certain degree of risk and there's no certainty. So it does seem to be able to to mimic investment advice.
1: Yeah, and, and basically not saying very much and kind of sitting exactly. on the fence and <laughs> caveating everything very heavily. Yeah, exactly. Well, well yeah, but I was also going to say, like, I think machine learning, machine learning is definitely not a new new thing in investing right so lots of these famous quant houses have been using kind of machine learning type algorithms for a long 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 time so in that sort of slightly narrower sense it's already out there being used and influencing markets and has been for a long time I think so I, I don't know that that don't know, we should be looking to that as a good game changer
0: yeah should we, should we should we
1: just do a quick preview of this week's episode
0: yeah sounds good
1: so we're talking credit
0: yes so we're, we're hosting Jeff Boswell who gives us an overview of all credit markets and which areas are particularly looking attractive.
1: Yeah. And I think we've been hoping to do this for a while. It's actually, it's quite hard to find folks who can give that really good perspective over all of the credit markets, I think, because they tend to be quite specialized uh, sort of markets. But it's a really important market, I think, for a lot of our clients. It's been really important in terms of the market dynamics over the last sort of couple of years. Obviously, they've had really bad returns last year, but then there's been a sort of whole kind of reset in terms of valuations and yields and spreads looking a lot sort of better. So we kind of wanted to kind of have that trying to unpack what are higher yields mean? What are spreads telling us? What about different markets, investment grade, all that, all those sort of questions. And I think it'd be a good conversation with Jeff. Definitely. All right, should we do it?
0: Let's go for it.
2: Welcome to Investment
1: Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
0: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
1: Hi, everyone. So bonds and particularly corporate bonds were obviously a big feature of the investment landscape over the last year or so we've been wanting to do an episode on that for quite a while actually so delighted to say that's what we're doing today and joining us for that conversation we have jeff boswell head of alternative credit at 91.
2: jeff welcome thanks for joining us thanks very much dan nice to be here
1: jeff could you
0: give us a sense of your role
2: sure So as Dan said, I'm head of alternative credit, but my day job is really I'm one of the PMs on our multi-asset credit strategy, where we invest across a variety of different corporate bond markets. Yeah, and I guess it's that breadth of your experience
1: that we're kind of really keen to tap into today, because you can hopefully sort of play across those a little bit and give us a bit of broad insight into how you think about them. Jeff, before we get into all the detail, what's one thing we should know about you
2: that we wouldn't find on your CV? Probably the most interesting fact outside of what's on the CV is I have three kids, and totally coincidentally their birthdays are the 19th of may the 21st of may and the 22nd of may so may is safe to say i think a very busy month for us wow that is pretty amazing so we're coming up to that and this the planning cycle must have started for this year i suppose has it and it has already i think as a guy you generally the discussion i have with my wife is about having one birthday party for the three of them but she's always very keen for them to have their own thing so anyway it's a very busy month safe to say yeah it must help with the
1: passing down of clothes and stuff are all seasonally appropriate at the right sizes and stuff generally. So It
2: does. Totally. Cool.
0: Perfect. So should we get into it then? If you could talk us through the bond market sell-off last year and what that meant for different parts of the market, what you saw?
2: 2022 was a brutal year for fixed-income investors in general and certainly credit as a part of that. And really driven by, I suppose, two big themes. The first was the massive reset in underlying Gavi rates that we saw – on top of that, we also saw a meaningful widening in spreads. So what that meant was that certain parts of the market ultimately ended up with returns which were even worse than what you saw through the GFC. And notably, in that regard, it was investment grade credit, which was really at the epicenter of the sell-off. When you actually peel back the layers of the onion, that rate sell-off that I talked about, which really started things at the start of the year, meant that we saw a meaningful underperformance of the quality ends of the market. So I mentioned investment great credit, but was anything that basically had a duration angle to it was for sale for certainly the first six months of the year. As we then progressed from, I suppose, rates concerns to slightly more growth concerns, that's where we started to see the spread widening, leaking into the lower rated parts of the market. But net-net, what you'd say is looking across where asset classes ended the year, it was generally a year where quality underperformed, certainly relative to the role that you would have expected it to fulfill within portfolios, but a very brutal year pretty much across the board. Yeah, I mean, I think it was around the worst
1: worst year ever for the Bloomberg Aggregate Barclays Aggregate Index. Lots of stuff suggesting that it's worse for 50 years or more, and that's certainly at the higher quality end.
2: Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, if you think about the global investment grade market, global investment grade corporate market was down 19% at a point in time. We ended the year down 15%, but that compares to the GFC where that market was down about 7%, depending on the index that you looked at. So some really brutal negative return numbers. The upside of that, and no doubt we'll talk about it, is that it's led to a total reset in valuations. And Certainly from a yield perspective, but also from a spread perspective. Interestingly, yields look probably slightly more attractive than spreads, but I'm sure we'll dive into that. Bonds are back, you might say. Bonds are back. Has been said, I think, many times.
1: The long-awaited return of yield. One other point on last year, I guess. You sort of alluded to one of the issues, but just to kind of spell it out, I guess lots of times... What folks have found is that often this lower risk portfolio, let's think in private wealth kind of space for individuals for a second, it's kind of the lower risk portfolios had actually done worse in some cases, because that's often where they're majoring on investment grade, a safer end of the markets. And that's where you've seen the biggest mismatch of expectations, I guess, because in the more lower rated bonds, the high yieldy stuff, you sort of know that you lose money every
2: so often when things get bad, that's not great, but expected. Whereas it's the fact that the better quality bonds are done badly was the real shock, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, and those better quality bonds that you talked about, because of the yield that they went into that sell-off, at, they had multiple years of return wiped out through the course of last year. Last year, again, to put some context for you, so European investment grade, that index started the year with a yield of just half a percent and ended the year with a yield of 4%. You went into that with a portfolio giving you only half a percent and you ended up with negative total returns of around 11% for that market. So It was phenomenal. Unfortunately, people who maybe expected that portion of their portfolio to provide a bit more of a defensive anchor because of that nature of the sell off, where you had rates and spreads selling off, and ended up doing totally the opposite.
0: So, what area held up the most then?
2: Unsurprisingly, floating rate credit did relatively well. So basically, those parts of the market where I suppose they didn't have that rates element to the sell-off, so they had the spread widening element, but not necessarily rates. So if you looked at the kind of superstar performance of the year, loans, so leverage loans in both the US and Europe, where I think the standout asset classes, US leverage loans is a good example, ended the year only down about 1%. European leverage loans were down about 3%. And that plays, I mentioned it earlier, but investment grade being down 15 odd in the US investment grade. And European high yield being down about 11. So it gives you an idea just in terms of, I suppose, the rates impact that you had on traditional bond markets, the non floating rate element to the market. There were a couple of other areas that did relatively well, again, generally floating rate orientated So parts of the structured credit landscape kind of held up reasonably well. Floating rate was probably the biggest thing that saved them. But realistically, it was anything which didn't have the rates element to it, which actually did slightly better.
1: And in terms of where big picture, where that puts us, I mean, I love those charts that kind of show the last decade of where spreads have been. It's kind of like a bar. And you can see where that little marker on in the big bar as to where we've been. And for so long, you see those and it's right slammed at the bottom of that range for the whole time. And then it seems to have gone all the way back almost to the other side or has it? In your view, is it now normal? Is it more normal? Is it on the way to somewhere else? Is it overstretched?
2: How are you seeing that now? So this is the big conundrum we have as credit investors at the moment, and we alluded to it a little bit earlier, but it's this dynamic between yields and spreads. So if you looked at that bar graph from a yield perspective to what you were saying, and you looked at it, let's say, on a 10-year basis, almost all markets are in the 90th percentile. So they're still very much towards the top end of that band. If you looked at it from a spread basis over a similar time period, and we're talking 2010 onwards, so post-GFC, most spreads are around long-term averages, you know, some slightly cheaper of long-term averages, some slightly more expensive, but they're certainly not at recessionary type levels. And therein lies the dilemma is that I suppose typically after you've had a, a sell-off of the sort of size and negative returns, it's often spreads which are very much towards the top end of the spectrum and all in yields, which are maybe more middling because you've had rates rallying. So that's very much part of the conundrum in terms of what do you do from here. There's also to what we talked about earlier, parts of the market which have outperformed and underperformed. You know, whilst quality underperformed meaningfully through 2022, we've seen a decent bounce back over the fourth quarter and the start of this year. So it's starting to look a little bit more expensive. High yield is a good example, you know, which probably outperformed its underlying historic beta certainly to investment grade, but that's starting to look increasingly expensive from a spread standpoint. But the conundrum you have is yields, which actually still look very, very interesting. Yeah, and just to jargon bust a little bit on that for a second,
1: I'm sure most listeners will be familiar with difference in yields and spreads, but just, just sort of double back on it for just a second, I guess. Yield is obviously the all-in yield you get from a bond, pretty good proxy for what the return you're going to get. So that might be what a lot of folks are interested in, because why wouldn't you be interested in the return? But then, of course, the spread is that bit in excess of what you get from government bonds, which is when it comes down to it is what we're really interested in for corporate bonds, because that is the extra piece that you're getting or risking by being in those corporate bonds. So is the right way to think about corporate bonds more trying to assess the spread then rather than assess the yield? Or what you're saying is it's just a mix of the two, basically? I think it is
2: is a mix of the two and rightly so as credit investors we are most concerned with spread because spread is ultimately what compensates us for things like credit risk or default risk for liquidity risk and i suppose that's usually a very good barometer in terms of i suppose depending on where spreads are when to increase risk within your portfolio alternatively when to decrease risk and effectively wait for a more interesting entry point The conundrum that you have at the moment is there's a bit of a mismatch because you've had such a massive repricing of the government bond curve. And so that's really the conundrum because as credit investors, whilst we talk about spread, the best indicator of forward-looking returns in our portfolio is the yield of the portfolio. If we look at our MAC portfolio as a good example, which has got a yield of getting on 9%, That typically, as a credit investor, you look at that and it's saying, well, that portfolio is going to give you, on average, a 9% return over, realistically, probably the next three years. It might not necessarily be straight line in that regard, so there'll be some better years and some worse years, but it's your best indicator for looking return. And this is really the conundrum, is that I think you've got, depending on your orientation, if you're more worried about total return, yields certainly look a lot more interesting. Whereas if you're a purist and you're looking at purely from a spread perspective in terms of incremental spread to the risk-free, then things are still interesting. And I should say, when we say spreads are around long-term averages, spreads in credit markets often live below long-term averages for long periods of time, certainly in the era of financial repression that we've had over the last 12 or 14 years. Spreads are interesting, they're just not as interesting as yields are.
0: It would be great to explore decision-making with you. How does the macro environment play into that versus, say, fundamentals?
2: This question, I suppose, comes back down to what we were talking about spreads in terms of what are you really getting paid for? And we're at an interesting junction now in terms of having such a variety of potential macro outcomes from here. There's a no-landing scenario, which people are talking about. There's a soft-landing scenario. There's a harder-landing. There's a very hard landing scenario from a macro standpoint, and depending on where we land in terms of that macro outcome, it's going to have a meaningful impact in terms of where we end up from a corporate stress and a credit default standpoint. We're big believers that making big macro forecasts, it's exceptionally difficult to get them right and consistently right. So that's the big focus for us is really on an individual name basis, trying to find those names which we feel we have a good sense as to how they'll perform across those different ranges and that give us a nice symmetry or an asymmetrical power profile, which is certainly in our favor.
1: I was gonna say you got those four scenarios I was about to ask. If you can tell us which one of those we're gonna be in, that'd be absolutely fantastic. The point of credit investing is actually you do not need to know. And that ought to be a strength of the whole field, the whole idea of the allocation is that you don't need to go calling scenarios because, like you say, nine percent yield, that sounds pretty good, pretty
2: to return take that in most scenarios it is about the stock picking effectively and i think the way that markets sold off last year have actually played to a multi-asset credit type approach whereby you've actually got a lot to choose from and you've got markets which kind of diverged in the way you would have expected them to perform so a little bit to what i was saying earlier where you had some quality underperform and then you had other parts of the market, which have maybe done a little bit better than you'd expect. So it's easy for us to kind of not fish in those ponds. But you're dead right in that our view is, as credit investors, there's a lot of opportunity with this reset and and spreads and yields that we've had. It's trying to pick your spot in terms of giving you best optionality to take advantage of that without taking a big directional view. If you wanted to take a big directional view, as a good example, you'd really go low down in credit quality and You'd be piling into triple Cs or low-rated single Bs. But then that's a very big one-directional bet in terms of us ending up in the kind of no-landing or very soft-landing scenario. And actually, because of the way markets hold off, there's not really the need to do that at the moment. You can actually pull the levers and still get to a portfolio which has got an attractive yield without necessarily betting everything, certainly on one outcome or the other.
0: So where do corporate fundamentals stand at the moment, would you say?
2: So this is very interesting in the context of that spread argument that we just talked about. And the reason it's very interesting is that because we've almost had a mini cycle two years ago through COVID, corporate fundamentals actually look pretty good, certainly relative to where we traditionally would have been going into a cycle. So, you know, if you think about cycles of old, Typically, the way that you come to the end of a cycle is there's a buildup of excess in one form or the other. Typically, that's releveraging or it's a reduction in terms of debt serviceability costs. But there's generally some sort of excess which is built up. Interestingly, in this cycle, because we almost had a kind of mini purge through COVID and you had a shift in corporate behavior to survival and deleveraging and terming out of debt maturity and locking in low coupon debt... Generally, the starting point for corporate fundamentals is actually pretty good, whether that's the investment grade markets that you look at or whether it's the high yield markets. Leverage levels are certainly relative to an historical context, probably middle of the cycle type range, if not slightly lower. Now, interestingly, again, certain people will point to movement in things like leverage ratios, but that's a little bit of, of a change in terms of the constitution, the constituents of some of those indices, which we can talk about. But generally, your starting point is actually pretty good. One of the big things we get asked about is maturity walls, and corporates generally have done a lot of work in terms of pushing out the maturity wall so they don't have near-term debt maturities to deal with.
1: No, I was just going to say, it almost sounds like the normal cliche is that bond folks tend to be pessimistic about the world and are very worried about things, whereas that almost sounds a bit controversial hearing you say that actually things are pretty decent, pretty fine, and it's almost like the equity people at the moment who are kind of worrying about, oh, are things too richly valued and could there be an earnings recession kind of thing? So I don't know. Does that make sense? It feels like I think roles have been reversed a little bit. Do you find you have to kind of whisper that positive view on corporate fundamentals because people are going to kind of get all worried about it?
2: There could be an element of that. I mean, possibly part of that is valuation-based. Maybe as a credit investor, you know, looking at these yields when you're in the 19th percentile, you feel that you've got a little bit more buffer. Fair to say, as we were talking about different economic scenarios, there is a bad scenario where default rates do surprise to the upside. So if we end up in, let's say, a very hard landing, to bring it back to default rates, to give you some sort of perspective here. So default rates now are bumbling around 1% to 2%, depending on which market you look at in the sub-investment grade space. Long-term averages are around 3 3.5%. Historical cyclical peaks are 10 to 12%. If you go back to the kind of GFC, .com, boom, et cetera, I suppose our starting point is if you end up in, let's say, a modestly hard landing some sort of economic contraction, but nothing significant, it's difficult to see how you get up to those 10 to 12% default rates because you haven't had that excess built up that I talked about. And then again, you go back to the dot .com or go back to GFC, there was a lot more excess and leverage levels were higher debt serviceability ratios were certainly a lot worse than they are here. But there is a scenario, and this is the thing. When you fast forward this forward 12 months and you call me up on that, there is a scenario where... It does surprise to the upside, but it's difficult to see in one of those more moderate economic outcomes as getting up to anywhere near those sort of numbers.
0: So given fundamentals look good, how do you narrow down the universe and pick names?
2: I'd say generally corporate fundamentals look good, but obviously that's averages across the market. So I think as this economic cycle plays out, and I think we are... Believe is that there are more stresses and strains to come in terms of how this plays out from a macro momentum standpoint. I think we will see more dispersion within credit. We're typically orientated towards the slightly more defensive sectors because of the fact that there's not a huge amount of differentiation in terms of what you get paid. We're also a little bit more orientated towards shorter dated credit, where credit curves in general at the moment are either very flat or even slightly inverted. And so what that means for us is we often get paid more from a yield perspective in terms of owning short dated paper than we do for owning longer dated paper, which in our mind is a nice attractive way to try to buy into some of that sell-off without necessarily taking undue risk in terms of what that macro outcome is. So I'd say that's generally our orientation when we're doing the mining for new ideas is that there's a defensive tilt and probably a short dated tilt in terms of what we see as attractive at the moment.
0: And in terms of bond indices, that's an area that I've heard it's quite difficult to construct indices to be representative of some universes. Is passive even an option in fixed income?
1: I think in asking this question, we're very conscious about asking an active manager about passive investing. So I suppose it's probably not going to shock us on your answer, but I think this is a genuinely interesting point.
2: I'm interested to hear how you think about it. As an active manager, you're not going to be surprised at my answer. It is legitimate and backed up by fact there are passive alternatives to your question, Nikki. So there are reasonably large ETFs, which you can buy into. What I'd say is, interestingly, there's a couple of dynamics at play trying to buy credit or fixed income passively. The first is that, interestingly, the cost of those ETFs is still reasonably high relative to what you'd pay an active manager. Obviously, with inequities, we've seen a total collapse in terms of fees on passives, whereas if I take HYG as a good example, so that's the biggest high-yield ETF, so U.S. high-yield ETF, the expense ratio for that vehicle is 48 basis points, which is, again, it's not extreme, but it's certainly not the single-digit basis points that you have with equities. The other dynamic is because of the nature of credit markets and the difficulty in terms of rebalancing portfolios and managing flows and buying off-the-run bonds, et cetera, a lot of those ETFs actually struggle to keep pace with underlying benchmarks, which they manage to. It varies a little bit across the credit spectrum here where the investment grade ETFs are probably slightly better at it because, again, it's probably easier to construct a representative portfolio of the benchmark. When you get into high yield, it becomes more and more difficult. And again, picking that HYG example for you, if you look at HYG and what it's returned over the last 10 years, it's given you 35% return. If you look at what the underlying benchmark it's managing against, US high yield has given you, it's given you 50%. So it's a 15% variability in terms of performance of the passive alternative versus the underlying benchmark, you know, not picking up specific managers. So again, it's not as easy and clear cut as it is within equity land. Slightly easier, higher up in quality. But the minute you start to get to sub investment grade credit, firstly, it's not as cheap as the equity passive terms of is. And then secondly, you've got a decent tracking error potential relative to the underlying benchmark that you're trying to manage against.
1: One question that I've thought a lot about is actually almost more theoretical sort of high level than that, which is kind of saying inequities, you have this argument market efficiency effectively, and people have different stances on where they are on the spectrum of believing in that. But I think a lot of folks will sort of accept there's some level of market efficiency. And so the price that the market is ascribing to a company is a decent proxy for the amount of capital you should allocate to it. So therefore, a market cap index is at least a decent starting point for constructing a portfolio. Whereas in bond indices, I guess, often it's, well, isn't it always, the issuance is driving the sizing in the index, which is a quite different thing. By passive, you are letting that drive your capital allocations, which feels to me there's a much shakier theoretical foundation compared with equity passive, where you can sort of say, well, yeah, if you believe in efficiency, it makes sense, but you don't have that in credit.
2: No, absolutely. You are driven by, I suppose, just the nature of how those benchmarks evolve. And if those benchmarks evolve and you end up with significant size issues, I don't know, we've had a few of these in history where the issues themselves become enormous, you're just buying into that passively. The other interesting dynamic with ETFs in particular is the biggest users of ETFs are active managers, such as ourselves. And arguably the ETFs, the role that they've started fulfilling is one of liquidity provider. And interestingly, there is alpha within liquidity management from a credit standpoint. So those ETFs who become forced sellers or forced buyers of credit at the wrong or the right point in time, it meaningfully impacts that return signature that we talk about. And I think that's part of that underlying return differential that we talked about. Let's
1: pivot a little bit and move on. I wanted to talk a little bit of broadly about credit ratings, but let's just quickly pause on, because we want to go back to something you said earlier, because I think it's really interesting is sort of a cliche, but also a truism to think about cycles in credit, I guess. Times are good, then times are bad, then times are good again, broadly kind of thing over time. That's sort of what happens. And particularly in credit, that's borne out through companies defaulting, losses, and then spreads getting wide, then spreads getting narrow, all that kind of stuff that folks will be familiar with. The question, I guess, I've always thought was intriguing is, Was COVID actually the end of a cycle or not? Can you clear that up for us? I'm not sure. Some people sort of seem to say it and so we're in the opening of a new cycle, whereas some people will say, oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't a proper cycle end, so actually we're still in the very extended phase of the cycle that started post-financial
2: crisis. So how do you see that? I mean, you could argue it wasn't a traditional cycle. Certainly it was kind of forced upon us. My counterpoint would probably be, I think at that point in time, large parts of the market we're talking about, it had been a very long cycle. And we're kind of waiting for some sort of catalyst. And then the catalyst ended up being COVID. From a credit investor standpoint, I suppose, what actually played out? Well, default rates within the US and Europe went up to around about the 6% mark, spiked up and then spiked down again. But ultimately, what is a credit cycle? Well, a credit cycle is getting to the end of effectively easy money and then having some sort of purge of the weaker corporates and then a reset in terms of management's objectives and focus. And you had that increase in defaults. And probably one of the biggest things that we saw, which is impacting that corporate health piece that we talked about earlier, is management's orientation because of COVID shifted towards deleveraging, cash flow generation, balance sheet repair, less shareholder friendly actions. And that gave us a bit of that reset that you would have had in a traditional cycle. So I'd say that's the key is you can debate it. it was a very unusual cycle to agree with what you're saying. It was an unusual cycle, but effectively, even though it manifested itself in an unusual manner, it did give us that kind of reset and focus of management in terms of balance sheet repair, which has then set us up quite well for where we stand now. So the Bond Market Cycle Committee
1: have met. There is a committee for that, right? They've decided that it was actually the end of the cycle and that we are talking about this as a new cycle. Could clear that up? It's rumored. I mean, apparently it's a committee with a secret handshake. There's a committee with a secret handshake, which I'm not part of. Grey smoke coming out somewhere out of a building that kind of signified that that the decision had been made. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Credit ratings then. So yeah, the question there. So one question, I guess, is the delineation between investment grade and high yield drives a lot of allocations, basically, because there are some mandates that focus on investment grade and some that focus on high yield. So you get this, you might say, real bright line between those two, you get lots of issuers that will end up concentrating just on the cusp. And some people say, well, that's a bit of an artificial distinction, doesn't make that much sense, creates all these kind of inefficiencies. So how do you see that cusp between investment grade and high yield? Is it a bit
2: artificial? Do you think it makes sense? And I suppose, what are the opportunities that that creates for someone like you? I mean, it it creates huge opportunity to what you're alluding to in that line in the sand, which the rating agencies effectively decide at points in time, it does feel a little bit arbitrary. And granted, I suppose there is a delineation between typically you know, more levered balance sheets and slightly smaller businesses and maybe more economically vulnerable versus bigger stable businesses. But again, that line and for all of those corporates that operate around that line, the margins are sometimes very fine. And so, certainly, if you've got large pools of capital, which are specifically focused on investing within the tram lines, in our mind, those investors which can effectively swim between those two markets, there's often very good opportunity, certainly from a rising star standpoint. And, you know, there's been numerous studies in terms of how buying into rising stars, how beneficial it can be. Just to jargon bust on that quickly, do you want to just explain rising stars, fallen angels, just to recap what they are and also what the traditional thinking around them is? So rising stars are obviously names which are high yield rated, so have a rating of double B plus or below, which are then going to investment grade. So typically, a rising star is a name which has maybe one investment grade rating and eventually it'll get two ratings or three ratings and it'll get upgraded into investment grade markets. The Fallen Angels is exactly the opposite. So it's basically investment grade names which have been downgraded to high yield and hence have become Fallen Angels, What we typically see is a lot of those fallen angels, unless there's fraud behind it or something more sinister, a lot of those fallen angels, because of the size and scale and quality of those businesses, ultimately, they will bounce back. Part of the opportunity that we were just alluding to here is you get those fallen angels, which often it's maybe because they were running a more levered balance sheet or have a slightly more aggressive M&A policy or something of that sort, and it's led to them, Getting downgraded or effectively put in the penalty box by the rating agencies because of the size and scale of these businesses and the levers they can pull once they've sorted themselves out, oftentimes they do bounce back. And so there's opportunity if you can play that interplay between fallen angels and rising stars. What happens to what you're alluding to is because you've got so many index-focused investors, as their name drops out of the investment grade index, often you've got a lot of owners who are forced sellers. And they have to sell it. By the same token, as a name gets upgraded, a rising star from high yield to investment grade, you've got a lot of forced buyers, and it's now in the index, so they have to buy it. And hence that kind of drives decent spread widening or spread tightening, depending on the direction of travel.
0: Are you seeing emerging market debt as particularly attractive at this point in time?
2: At this point in time, certainly not. And what I would say is, I suppose, our approach to how we look at EM corporate debt and It's relative attractive to DM is we feel you should be getting paid a premium for investing in emerging markets just for the incremental geopolitical risk. So I suppose our point of comparison is on a like-for-like basis, what can you get for similar quality or similar rated corporates? And interestingly, there's been a lot of noise within the EM corporate credit indices over the last couple of years. A lot of that noise has been China-orientated, so I think everyone's probably aware of some of the stresses and the strains within the China property market as names have defaulted or restructured. Some of those have fallen out of the index, but that's led to a lot of noise in terms of, I suppose, spreads widening out and then tightening in again. But actually, if you look at EM indices, where they are relative to their own history and also relative to where they are to developed markets at the moment – towards the tight end of the range. Certainly, we would argue from a spread and a yield standpoint. So certainly, again, with our approach in terms of only investing in that market on a tactical basis, we feel that there's been enough that's gone on within developed markets, which makes that market a lot more interesting than certainly what you're seeing in EM at the moment.
0: Perfect. And thinking about market liquidity generally, how do you go about that?
2: I suppose one of the dynamics we've had to deal with as credit investors is all of our markets have grown significantly post-GFC. So most markets have grown two to threefold in terms of absolute size. At the same time, what we've generally seen is a decrease in dealer balance sheets, certainly in investment banks, trimming the amount of risk that they're running. So what that's led to, undoubtedly, is that in periods of disconnect, you don't have as much buffer in terms of absorbing market stresses and flows, which is one of the critical roles that I suppose that dealer universe used to provide. What that's meant for us as a manager is, I mentioned this earlier, but liquidity is actually a key part of the conversation from a portfolio construction perspective. And I think undoubtedly can add alpha from a return standpoint. So depending on our orientation, liquidity construct is very important. And to give you an example with that, You want to be a liquidity provider during periods of market stress. So if we get to a juncture where we feel the markets maybe a little bit overextended or illiquidity premium or liquidity premium that you should be getting is just not apparent, then again, we'll pull levers to try to give ourselves as much optionality, waiting for some sort of correction. So that could be things like maybe running up the physical cash balance within the fund, but then using things like synthetics synthetic credit indices or even things like ETFs as a lever within which then we can pull very quickly to kind of take advantage of any liquidity mismatches or liquidity-induced volatility.
1: I guess that's one aspect of it, isn't it? The way you're getting paid for illiquidity. But I suppose the other point is, how should asset owners think about it? I mean, MAC funds typically are reasonably liquid in terms of the terms. Of, you know, Monthly, quarterly dealing would be sort of normal or even daily, I guess. But I mean, do you think that's fair? Should investors think of them as fairly liquid parts of the portfolio, which I think is probably is how asset owners think of them? Or do you think that should actually be thought of slightly differently?
2: The difficulty you've got with Mac is I suppose there's so many different flavors. But if I had to say you're kind of middle of the fairway Mac strategies, for the most part they are very liquid or as liquid as you can get within credit markets. Because I suppose part of the concept is you should be able to move things around. Dynamism and asset allocation is part of what you do. So arguably You shouldn't be locking away capital in illiquid parts of the market, but it is variable. So, I'd say to your question, it's it's essentially a matter of understanding what your MAC manager is doing. And there are MAC managers who do have illiquid buckets or who are trying to capture an illiquidity premium by investing in less liquid parts of the market. And with those sort of managers, I think undoubtedly you're more exposed to big movements in the market. Certainly, I suppose, having gone through the LDI stress. That the market did recently, in those sort of instances, to the extent that you need to realise your capital very quickly. If your Mac manager is sitting on twenty percent private debt, they might struggle with a very big redemption. So it is somewhat variable across Mac managers, but I'd say for the most part, they are playing and certainly our Mac strategy. You're playing in the more liquid parts of the market where they is always a price. And credit liquidity, it does often get a hard time and it is patchy in terms of it's there when you often don't want it. And sometimes it's not there when you do want it. But what I'd say is even in those times of high stress, as long as you've been constructing your portfolio in a reasonably thoughtful manner, there is always a price at which you can transact. It's more the cost of that transaction, which goes up. That's
1: what I was getting at, actually. That's interesting because, yeah, you're right. It is often talked up as a bit of a scare story to people who aren't involved in it day-to-day. And you just don't know what to make of people will throw out some little anecdotes, one data point, and say, oh, you do wonder. But it's it's interesting your reflection there that maybe it can be overstated. Is that what you're saying? Is that the illiquidity risk can be overstated
2: a bit? I think it can be, certainly if your manager is investing in traditional markets. And
1: I just want to pick up another point you said there, because it's a really important one, talking about there are a lot of different types of MAC strategies, you're right. And I've really seen that over the last sort of 10 years, I guess, looking at that area. I think MAC is one area in particular where it's ripe for that, simply because it's almost ironic, it's almost self-fulfilling. The more you have a bucket that's defined in a certain way, the more people will look to the edges of that bucket, because the existence of a bucket creates opportunities. Because the more you have people aiming down the middle of a categorization the bit like you were saying between IG and high yield, the more it creates opportunities at the edges, then other people will focus it on the edges and you have to constantly redefine it. I have found that Mac is awfully hard to actually pin down as a strategy. I think it's better to think of it as a spectrum of strategies. I guess the key point is you need to know what kind of strategy you're investing in. But even more important than that is to ensure that managers avoid what I sort of call tourism, where you're sort of a middle of the road Mac manager most of the time, but then you kind of get drawn into other things that are just not, strictly in the wheelhouse and end up getting you into trouble, basically. So I don't know. Do
2: you recognize any of that? And how would you sort of think about that? Absolutely. Ultimately, you should get a good sense in terms of, to your point, I suppose, what ponds is your Mac manager fishing in? And what is their broader risk profile? And I suppose the ranges within which they'll probably move. The other important point worth making, to your point a little bit about them doing things or fishing in maybe ponds or around the periphery when they shouldn't, is certain MAC managers also add additional return drivers, as they would call it, to their MAC funds. And that's things like FX speculation or trading rates or adding additional aspects, which you could argue are incremental return drivers, but they can also give you a very different outcome to what you're expecting. So again, I suppose it's just be very aware in terms of What should the performance profile of your Mac manager look like in different environments? And you want to get a real flavor for how they perform in different environments. And you're not surprised that you thought that they were generating their returns principally from credit spread. But actually, a lot of it's been coming from interest rate speculation or currency positioning.
0: Jeff, across your career, how have you seen credit markets evolve? Are there any particular trends that you can allude to? And also, just on the back of that, has the structure changed, in particular, post the 2008 recession?
2: So, I think there have been some significant trends, certainly since I started investing. And a lot of this, you can say, is certainly evolution post the GFC to what you're alluding to. And I'd say probably the biggest trend, and this has been very much felt within Europe, is just how markets have not only grown, but then also the breadth of financing options has really widened out. So I mentioned it earlier, but almost all credit markets we invest in have grown two to three times the size that they were at the time of the GFC. But interestingly, there's other aspects to that in terms of certainly Europe as a good example, it used to be a heavily, heavily banked market, you know, and cap markets was a Relatively nascent part of the financing market. What we've seen is cap markets have just come on in leaps and bounds, whether that's the development of the traditional bond indices, European investment grade and European high yield. But then around the periphery, there's been a number of other asset classes that have come to the fore, things like corporate hybrids or part of the securitization market or even parts of the bank financing market. Things like Cocos didn't exist very long ago. So as a credit investor, And certainly as a Mac investor, there's a variety of new asset classes which have come about over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, which have added something in terms of, I suppose, a risk-return dynamic or giving you something slightly different. So that's probably been the biggest change. And just challenge on that quickly, I mean, are all those things
1: good ideas or are some of them finance gone mad? I'm not sure exactly what it is. I love the sound of Cocos, but (laughs) you can see the knock there, right? This is just kind of, investment bank
2: has gone mad on, on some of this stuff. Is that fair or would you push back on that a little bit? I'd push back on it and then I think there's a lot of that that happened pre-GFC. But I think post-GFC, in traditional credit, we haven't had faddish markets where they've come in and then they've disappeared a couple of years later. Biggest market is a good example, which and again, some of this was kind of, or a lot of this was regulatory driven, was COCOs or AT1s which is a market which was non-existent back then and is now worth about $200 billion in size. It's a kind of high-yield-esque type market, even though it's got a crossover rating. So it's you know something slightly new and different. A part of, I suppose, why these markets have also developed is, undoubtedly, there's part of it is investor sophistication has improved, I think, over time, but also issuer sophistication has improved. And part of this is that in this era of, low interest rates or near zero interest rates, running levered balance sheets has become far more compelling from a corporate standpoint, certainly in the investment grade space, where I think corporates have taken the opportunity to bring on cheap debt as a means of kind of driving MA or alternatively juicing shareholder returns. And then those treasury functions within those issuers have become increasingly effective in terms of how do we finance ourselves as a European corporate? Do we finance ourselves in the European IG market? Or maybe actually let's issue a Yankee bond. Or is there something in some of these peripheral markets? Can I do some form of securitization or one of these kind of tangential markets? Shall we use corporate hybrids? So there's elements to it where I think not only is it around investor sophistication, but there's also an issuer sophistication. There's nothing in there, which is back to the kind of days of 2006, 2007, where it's crazy stuff actually going on. There are nuances to these markets which you need to understand. And each of these markets have their own technical drivers. But if you understand those drivers and you're specialist enough, they certainly can be additive in our mind. And then do you think a lot of those are going to
1: survive the end of ZERP and end of zero interest
2: rates? I think they will. They'll survive what'll inevitably happen is the way corporates use some of these markets will change and again, this is a big kind of macro forecast here, but let's assume interest rates remain at these sort of levels, or maybe even slightly higher or maybe slightly lower. But at far higher interest rates, I think corporates will be a little bit more circumspect in terms of maybe running the leverage strategies that they were before. And what that could mean in general is maybe slightly less debt issuance in certain markets, which could be a positive technical to be honest. But again, we don't really know how that exactly is going to play out until I suppose the dust settles a little bit. But higher interest rates, I think, and I will probably mean slightly less leverage on corporate balance sheets, which then will mean shrinkage in some of these markets. We're just not too sure exactly what the scale will be. Sorry,
1: I think I interrupted you a few minutes ago. Was there other long term themes and reflections that you wanted to
2: talk about as well? No, so I think that's probably the biggest thing. The other one which undoubtedly is at the forefront of people's minds, is sustainability. And I think we've really seen that market occupying a lot more headspace for both issuers as well as investors. Part of this is undoubtedly wanting to finance a just transition and being wary about the risks around it. Part of it, to my earlier point, is also around issuers optimizing their capital structures and realizing that they can actually issue debt within the ESG space in terms of green bonds or sustainability for cheaper finance costs than they can elsewhere, the trend, I suppose, which has really started over the last two or three years, and which will, I think, undoubtedly persist in the near term, is development of the ESG or sustainable bond market. Certainly within Europe, it's a little bit more nascent within the US, but I think we'll continue to see growth within that space. It
1: is huge, isn't it? That market. I mean, I've looked at it a couple of times. We've
2: written a couple of pieces about it in recent years, and it is
1: quite staggering. It doesn't cross the radar, I guess, a lot of the time, but. The size of it is massive
2: in Europe. No, it's significant. Over the last couple of years, even with the reduced issuance that we've had, ESG-labeled issuance has typically made up between 20 and 25% of each of those individual markets. So whether that's European IG, high yield, the same for the sterling markets. So it's significant. I suppose these bonds come in a traditional format. So they look and feel like a traditional bond, but then there are specific esg characteristics or requirements that are attached to them. But in terms of adoption from an issuer's standpoint within Europe, we've certainly seen fairly significant levels of it. How do you think about those, by the way? Because I suppose the
1: classic perspective on it was that typically, green bonds tend to have a lower yield and a premium in terms of the price. In other words, for the investor, it could be bad, great for the issuer. And then I've heard other people say, well, it's not quite as simple as that, and it's actually evolved a lot, and it depends on the issuer. Given your freedom to look across a load of stuff. Do you feel this does tend to be the case, they just offer a bit less yield for the same credit or are there areas where they're actually a good
2: yield investment as well? For the most part, they do offer slightly less yield. So that greenium that you talk about, and again, it varies a little bit over time, it ebbs and flows, but in the investment grade market, which I suppose is the biggest market in terms of the issuance of sustainability bonds, that greenium is typically probably somewhere around the five to 10 basis points mark in terms of spread. If I'm issuer XYZ, I can issue a standard corporate bond, let's say a spread of 200, or I can issue a green bond at 195. That'd be your decision criteria. So from a pure investor standpoint, I'm buying into an implement for the same corporate, which is paying me slightly less, so that's negative. But possibly there's some positive aspects in terms of supply and demand within for green bonds is quite favorable because there's obviously been a lot of ESG-oriented funds. So even though you're buying something that is slightly expensive, maybe it trades particularly well, or maybe it's slightly less volatile. History has shown there's not a huge amount of volatility difference between green bonds and non-green bonds. Looking back over the course of the last three or four years and the volatility we've had within them, it's very much case by case, I suppose, when we're looking at it in terms of our starting point is if we're effectively funding the same corporate, then we choose to invest in the bond which pays us more. But maybe there are specific characteristics around that green bond, which we like that we're willing to effectively finance and maybe get paid slightly less because it fulfills a particular need that we actually like.
1: Yeah, I suppose what I've always thought is I love the idea of green bonds, but as an asset owner, yeah, you want to get paid the right amount for the corporate you're funding. But I always sort of think, just go back to general market dynamics. If they're so good for the issuer, then in theory, more issuers should just come and issue them. Why wouldn't you sort of think if you can pay less interest? And then the more issuers who come and do green bonds, you would have thought eventually that has to sort of balance out at a rate where it's more in equilibrium.
2: The greenium starts to evaporate, yeah, which I think we will see. And interestingly, in that ESG issuance label of bonds that I talked about, you've obviously got green bonds, which we've been alluding to. You've got something called sustainably linked bonds, which is the big category. And this is an interesting one in terms of, I think people thought sustainably linked bonds would really take off. So this is looks and feels like a traditional corporate bond, but then there are some specific ESG-orientated KPIs, which are attached to it. They can be environmental, they can be social, they can be around reduction of carbon intensity levels. But interestingly, what we've found is a lot of the SLB issuance that came, the KPIs that were attached to those bonds were not particularly ambitious. So you had instances where corporates were almost trying to game the system and get cheaper financing without actually promising much. And investors have become wise to it. So they've pushed back quite aggressively on it. So what you found was that a lot of SLBs that were coming to market, issuers weren't getting that greenium, in which case they've actually said, well, why would I issue something where I'm making some promises, but I'm not actually getting any benefit for it. So we've seen SLB issuance through the course of last year actually reduce quite a lot, reducing green bond issuance pick up. So I suppose they've swerved to the product, which I suppose gives them best bang for their buck in terms of ESG issuance.
0: Jeff, you've given us a really good tour of bond markets today. What's the one thing you'd want listeners to take away from it?
2: I think the one thing would be last year was a particularly brutal year, obviously, which is very negative. The positive aspect of that is that it has seen a significant repricing. And I alluded to this earlier when we were talking about yields, but it's been a long time as a credit investor since you can invest in these sort of yields. The one thing I would say is, I think there is very good opportunity in terms of investing at yields that we haven't seen for a very long period of time. The flip side of that to what we've been talking about is because of the range of potential economic outcomes from here, it's not exactly as easy as I suppose previous cycles where you generally just weighed in at these sort of levels. So there is nuance to it in terms of how to get best bang for your buck. But the one thing I'd say is there's undoubtedly opportunity out there. And certainly as a Mac investor, we see a lot of that. It's a matter of how to take advantage of that. Is the bit which I suppose is a little bit more difficult at the moment, but there is opportunity.
1: Jeff, what do you think is the most
2: underappreciated thing about investing? Good question. Interestingly, it comes back to my previous answer. I'd say if I think actually to credit investing in particular, We've talked a little bit about inefficiency of markets and ratings driven approaches and how credit risk can be priced differently in different markets, etc. So we've got a lot of that going on within credit markets. But within credit markets specifically, I'd say the one thing is people underestimate the power of carry. And by that, I mean they underestimate the power of a coupon and the stability that that can give you from a return standpoint. And it comes back to that previous point I made about yields. When you've got a portfolio which is paying you 8% carry or 9% carry, A, it gives you a lot of stability of returns, but then also it gives you a lot of air cover for subsequent volatility. That if you have, let's say, further volatility and market price declines, because you're clipping that whatever it is, 60 basis points or 70 basis points a month in carry, undoubtedly act as just an attractive anchor. So I think from a credit investor standpoint, one of the most underestimated things is the power of carry and what that can bring to your portfolio.
1: Yeah, fair enough. 9% annual returns turning up on a regular basis every month.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: take that. Not bad at all, is it? Exactly. So either
0: fixed income related or outside of that world, any recommendations for good books or podcasts?
2: The most recent book that I read, which I really enjoyed, which somebody might have mentioned already, is Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with this book, but it's basically about he looks back over history at the changes and effectively the dominant empires in the world. And he goes all the way back, talks about how you transition from the Dutch to the Brits to the US. And interestingly, he talks about, I suppose, one of the transitions that we're undergoing at the moment in terms of the Chinese becoming effectively the dominant force and underlying that kind of unpicks a lot of the characteristics that you see in terms of why these empires rose and then why they fall and why you have that transition so it's very much a kind of longer term perspective certainly i think is going to play out not in our investment lifetimes but very interesting read so certainly one worth recommending
1: thanks for the recommendation Nick. that's been on my radar for a while brilliant great that's been a fascinating conversation today jeff thank you so much for your time pleasure thanks very much for having me